coming up in this episode of Not So Secret Dad's Business. Yeah, I had to uh, I had to go through like five or six rounds of editing with uh, with my illustrator to make sure everything was exactly the way I wanted. Like you can see, you know, in in the first opening shots, there's no pictures on the walls. And then there's a picture of the baby sonogram and then there's two pictures and then there's three pictures and then the wall is colored. Yeah, so there's a lot of things I I put in there that are are for parents who are going to look at it again with a more discerning eye than just you know glossing over it the first time. Are you new to fatherhood? Not sure if you're dating to your full potential? Well, you've come to the right place. Most dads aren't talking to each other about their lives as dads, like it's some kind of secret. Well, this is the podcast that takes the secret out of fatherhood. This is Not So Secret Dad's Business. G'day, g'day, and welcome to another episode of Not So Secret Dad's Business. We're back. After a few sporadic episodes here and there, I've uh, finally got a bunch of awesome content recorded and we're going to be rolling out weekly episodes again as of this week. So uh, thank you for your patience, guys. I've had a recently massive influx of guests booking with me to be on the podcast. So I've been madly booking and recording and editing and doing a bunch of stuff to, to get this show back on the road. Now, obviously, without my guests, I don't have a podcast to bring to you guys. So I'm going to put the call out again. I've already done it on Facebook. I'm putting it out here as well. If you're listening to this and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please feel free to send me an email. Hit up my website at the Be A Guest page on my website. Or if you know know somebody else that would be awesome to have on the show and you think I should be speaking to, please get them to reach out to me. Or even just let me know who they are and I can reach out to them. Speaking of awesome guests, though, this week I have on the show the illustrious Namaya Van Gilder. So I caught up with Namaya this past week to talk about his latest creative endeavor, which is a children's book called The Unseen Gift, A Christmas Love Story. Now, I've read the book. I've looked it over myself. It's a fantastic little book, and I think the kids will love it. But as you'll hear in, in this episode, Namaya actually likens it to the movie Up, very much because, uh, you know, it's more it's a book more for the adults than it is for the kids, really. And I think the adults are going to notice more in this book than anybody else. But it was really cool. I really resonated with it. The interesting thing about this episode is that talking to Namaya and just listening to his background and where he's come from, we ended up going down a bit of a rabbit hole of addiction. Now, I've been meaning to talk to somebody about addiction for a while now. Not so much how to get over it, but more how it affects those who are afflicted with addiction. And I'm not talking just you know, with drugs, I'm talking addiction right across the spectrum, whether it be alcohol, drugs, gambling, or even creative endeavors that we get really hyper fixated on. That being said, you know, I have to admire Namaya's 
openness talking about this because it wasn't a topic that we planned on touching on. But, you know, that's just the way this podcast rolls sometimes, you know. We don't know where we're going to go or what we're going to end up with, but it's all about dads having conversations and, and seeing where that goes. And I just, I hope that this episode has something there that can help other dads. And that's all this show's about, is trying to help other dads as well. Now, if you are a reader, Namaya also has a horror novel out at the moment, and it's called Wellspring of Malignancy. Now, it is under a pseudonym, because he didn't want to confuse it with the children's book, but both his horror novel, Wellspring of Malignancy, and his children's book, The Unseen Gift, A Christmas Love Story, are both available on Amazon. Uh, failing that, you can go to his website, which is www.vangilder-kane-books.com and you'll be able to get your hands on those right there. I will make sure that link is in the description. So if you don't remember it, not a problem. Just go into the description, hit that link, and it'll take you straight there. Anyway, guys, I'm not going to waffle on much further. Housekeeping sorted, introduction sorted. Let's get into this week's episode with Namaya Van Gelder. Hey, g'day, Nehemiah. How you doing, man? Hey, Nate. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, man. It's great to have you on the show, man. Thanks so much for reaching out to me. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you sent me what you called a short bio, and uh, I think it's about <laughs> two or three pages long. So I've been looking through that, man, and you've you've lived an interesting life. So to uh, kick us off, man, like give us a little bit of a background of yourself and and who you are. Sure. My name is uh, Namaya Van Gelder. I uh, grew up in a small town in upstate New York where there was nothing to do except, uh, you know, party and get into trouble, really. And uh, I joined the Army in my junior year of high school and uh, did an eight-year enlistment where I spent most of it in the 101st Airborne Division as an infantryman. Um, after that, I... Uh, I went home and with all of the wonderful bad habits that the army instilled in me, I, uh, I drank and drugged all of my savings away. And, uh, once I had an awakening and by that, I mean, after a case of beer and a couple bottles of whiskey and some hash, LSD, Coke, weed, you know, all in one night, I realized driving home in a jeep that uh i was gonna kill myself that this was eventually going to end up with me in a ditch somewhere so i cleaned up lost uh all my friends and uh, then went to school and luckily when i went to school uh, i met my i met my now wife she was my resident advisor in the dorm and uh, we've been together ever since. So, you know, going on 30 years now. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. There's, there's one thing I want to touch on with that, man, because you, you're saying that you left the army and you just drank and drugged everything away, right? Oh, yeah. 
Now, obviously, when when you go into the army, they break you down and they build you back up into the the soldier that they need, right? Like they they completely delete every part of you. Oh, absolutely. What? Do, how do you feel about the fact that they just sort of let you back out into the civilian world and don't really give you any preparation to to be able to cope? Because you end up just being a soldier going into a civilian's world. You don't go back to the way you were. Yeah, that's uh. That's true, but on the other hand, it is it is only true for a small percentage of enlisted soldiers. So you have, you know, the the two percent or what have you of of citizens who enlist in the military, and then of that two percent, you only have ten percent or twelve percent who actually enlist in a in a combat arms unit. So having had the opportunity to you know mingle with other soldiers there is a completely different mindset between between different units doing uh doing a combat operation job and you know working in an office is two completely different things and i think one of the things that was hard for me to come to terms with when my enlistment was coming to a close and it really only came to a close because most of my unit came down on orders to be stationed in Korea. I was not interested in going to Korea. Uh, so I, uh, I decided to ETS. And unlike being a mechanic or a cook or working in an office, there are only so many job opportunities when your training uh, consists of shooting at people and blowing things up. So I decided fuck it. I will, uh, I'll go, I'll go home and, uh, I'll go get my criminal justice degree and I'll, I'll go be a cop. I figured it was the closest thing that fit unless I wanted to get into private contracting and I didn't really, really want to go, uh, go back on deployment again. So, uh, so that's what I did. Um, the problem is at least in the States when you're deployed so much and you don't use your leave time, your leave time accrues, and then they pay you out for that leave time at the end. So you have a young 20-something full of testosterone idiot, and you give him a lump sum of money and say, okay, here's your plane ticket. Go home. And, and I did. And all of the bad habits that I would intermittently have when we were not on deployment, uh, you know, drinking primarily, there was nothing else to do. So we drank. And unfortunately, um, I had a close friend of mine from, from high school who, um, who left the army about the same time I did. And so that's what we did. Every day, every night from months on end, I would wake up. My breakfast would be a bottle of Jägermeister. And then I would go, uh, I would go work out. And I would drink a six pack of beer while I was working out while I'm chain smoking cigarettes. And then after that, then we would start partying. And yeah, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take too long to blow through 10 grand and booze and drugs when you really put your mind to it. So yeah, they didn't, uh, they didn't really prepare you to handle all of those uh, negative coping mechanisms. So what what happened then? Because you you went to school and uh, got your degree, and then the the academy shut down or something along those lines, right? So you didn't end up becoming a police officer at all. 
Oh yeah, I uh, I I took uh, I took my my NYPD exam, uh, passed it with flying colors. I got my number for the academy class, and then the uh, New York City had a big budget issue, and they cut two consecutive NYPD classes, of which mine was one. So I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And my wife was uh, working at a mobile medical diagnostics company. And uh, initially, they just needed they needed a courier. They needed someone who would be willing to drive around the entire tri-state area. And I said, shit, I can do that. It's fun. Isn't it funny how that works, right? Like you, you, you start a job with the thinking of, oh, I'll do this for a while until I can really do what I want to do. And you just end up stuck. You don't move. And I think sometimes it's one of the most soul-crushing things for a man, you know? It's like you've got this dream and it never fucking eventuates because just life gets in the way. Yeah, and the problem was that I unknowingly stepped further and further into that myself uh, because initially I thought, hey, this is this is fun. And there were certain things about the job that I loved. Um the way I started working up the ladder was because things would break. You know, this was, you know, a long time ago, you're talking, you know, 18 years ago. So the medical industry, especially what we did with mobile diagnostics was, you know, three generations technologically past. So it's uh, it was the kind of stuff you always see on TV with the doctors where they're taking x-rays and they're holding the film up in front of a light box. It was all that crap. That doesn't exist anymore. Anytime you see that in a movie, it's bullshit. But we would have these big x-ray processors and they would break down. And I was like, it's already broken. What's the worst thing that can happen? Fuck it. I'll take a shot at fixing this. And I was able to figure it out and fix it. And that made me invaluable. And that got you more money. And that got you a promotion. And that was fun, but then you're teaching other people how to do it, and that's less fun. And then you're just working on paperwork and answering emails, and that's even less fun. And then you're just spending your time placing orders and doing meetings, and you realize you're never getting out of this fucking chair. And all the things you set out to do for yourself, you're not doing. And then after having been, you know, clean for, for so many years because of all of the pregnancy issues that my wife and I were going through. I didn't know how else to cope with that. And so I started drinking heavily again and uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a downward spiral. Yeah. I, I can only imagine, man, again, from reading your bio, it's just, ah, man, like your pregnancy journey just must've been fucking heartbreaking. You know, so like, tell us a little bit about that because, yeah, it's one hell of a journey for to become a father, man. <laughs> yeah. So, my wife and I, not unlike a lot of parents, I imagine, in our same position, um, I grew up in upstate New York in a small town where, you know, there was uh, there was no money. It was all slate quarries and factories. You know, hardworking farmers and you know, slate splitters. And my wife grew up in the housing projects of the South Bronx. Neither one of us grew up with any money. And we decided that what we wanted to do was to be completely financially stable uh, before we decided to have children. And so that's what we did. 
and you know uh, we had a great time we we bought two houses and cars and we went on you know cruises around the mediterranean and trips to europe and all of these wonderful things that our parents would have never been able to even imagine doing but time waits for no man as they say and when you hear women talk about their biological clock ticking that's not bullshit and uh and we waited and we waited and then we were like okay it's time and you know it uh it happened pretty quickly the first time my wife got pregnant we were super duper excited <coughs> and uh and then we were at work and my wife and i you know we worked the same shift we worked at the same office so we would travel together and uh i got out of a meeting went to the car and my wife was just curled up in the passenger seat in agony and we rushed to the hospital and she had an ectopic pregnancy and uh, they had to remove the fallopian tube and uh, you know it was it was one of those things they couldn't uh, couldn't foresee it it didn't come up on any of the tests and because it was still early enough in the pregnancy where they they hadn't done the uh, ultrasound yet we we had no idea but they took the fallopian tube and of course you know being an inquisitive gentleman myself i made one of the biggest mistakes when the doctor asked me if i wanted to see my child and he showed me the picture of the removed fallopian tube, which I can never, ever forget. So it took a while to recover from that. And then we decided we would try again. And we did. And we tried for about four years, all natural, and uh, nothing, nothing worked. And so we went and saw a fertility specialist. And, you know, they did all the normal stuff, take take these supplements, do this, do that. That didn't work. So we moved on to the next step and we finally got to the IVF point and we went through 11 rounds of IVF. Three of, three of them were successful and we lost three in the first trimester and each one was successively more heartbreaking. And, you know, when you do IVF and they give you the breakdown of like the embryo health and all of that good stuff, you know, they, they tell you right away, like what the, what the sexes of the embryos are. And, and we only had one male embryo out of all of them, which was kind of crazy. And my wife really wanted, wanted a boy. And when we lost that one towards the end of the first trimester, that was a huge hit. It was a huge hit for her. And although I had always told my wife and even told myself whether I was, you know, in denial or not, I said, I'm, I'm, it doesn't matter to me. As long as we have a healthy child, I'm fine. Um, and then we lost the only boy, and it occurred to me that you're never, you're never going to have a son. This is it. Uh, I took that really, really hard. And then we did two more rounds of IVF, and finally one took, and we got, we got through 
the end of the first trimester into the second trimester. And, you know, it felt like we won the Super Bowl just to get that far. And man, I tell you, the, uh, the first time we did an ultrasound and I saw that baby's heartbeat, I cried right there in the office, cried like a baby. And uh, then everything was, everything was going good until they realized my wife was dilating way too early. And so they had to uh, stitch up her cervix. They call it a cerclage. They said if, uh, if that worked, great. If not, they were going to have to put her on bed rest for the rest of the pregnancy, which luckily she didn't need to do. We had an appointment to get out the cerclage. And the night before that appointment, uh, my wife's water broke. We were having dinner and things started to happen. So we had to call the hospital and, and rush in. And then my daughter was born, born the next day at 5.06 in the afternoon. Best moment of my life. And then as they handed me my daughter for the first time, after they took all of her measurements and put her adorable little cap on her, they said, well, okay, you can go over and sit in the corner in that chair. And um, as, as I was sitting there holding my daughter, I heard a noise and I can only equate it to the sound of someone just taking a cup full of water and throwing it on the floor. And I looked up and it was blood and there was blood everywhere. And then next thing I know, the room was in chaos and they're unhooking my wife from, from all of the uh, tubes and cables and everything else that they've got connected to her. And they're racing her out to the ER. And I'm just left sitting there. The floor is covered in blood. I'm holding my daughter. And uh, no one is there to tell me anything. They didn't say a word. They just raced her out. It was, it was uh, pretty rough. And then she was, uh, she was back later that night, you know, dope to the gills as one would expect. And she was, uh, she was fine. And then we discharged with the baby a couple of days later. Uh, had our first doctor's appointment the very next morning where we had to go back to the NICU because even though they would just discharge us the, the day prior, uh, they were so worried about her jaundice levels that they thought there was something possibly wrong with her liver. Uh, so we had to go back and be in the NICU for the better part of the next week. And uh, then we went home and uh, now my daughter is, you know, 17 months old and she's doing absolutely wonderfully. But of course, you know, before we got to that, it was uh, we got home and my wife was clotting. Now, when when a woman tells a man, oh, yeah, I'm I'm doing some clotting. We have no idea what that means. You know, generally speaking. Unless they're showing it to you, which is almost never going to be the case. So when my wife said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm clotting, I was like, okay. And after a week, I was like, well, did you call the doctor? She said, no, no, I have to, you know, I have to go for a follow-up appointment anyway. Okay. Until she actually saved a clot in the refrigerator. And trust me, that's not what you want to see when you're looking for your eggs in the morning. 
and I saw the size of this thing. And I was just like, no, you need to go to the doctor now. So she did. And uh, they admitted her after a long wait. And she went into the, uh, the surgery room at uh, around 7 o'clock at night when she was supposed to go in at 3 in the afternoon. And I had no idea that she didn't go in at 3 in the afternoon. So, you know, I'm just sitting on my hands. And uh, they called me at like 10.30 that night. And the doctor said she's out of surgery. She's doing okay, but she lost a lot of blood. I kind of lost track of what she said after that until she said, again, she lost a lot of blood. And after she told me she lost a lot of blood the third time, I was like, you need to be a little more specific for me. What do you mean by she lost a lot of blood? And the doctor said, well, she lost six units of blood. And if you're familiar with the human body, the human body holds approximately 10. So she lost more than half of her blood uh, on the operating table. And so she was in the ICU for the next week. And, uh, and then finally discharged. And of course, this was, you know, during the height of COVID. So I couldn't even bring the baby in to see her which, you know, was kind of a double whammy. But yeah, so she's good. She's an absolute savage. And, uh, and everything is, uh, everything is good. But uh, it was a long, long road to get my daughter here. Jesus Christ, what a roller coaster ride, man. Well, I can only imagine, man, because, you know, do- through doing this podcast, I've learned that there are a lot of, a lot of couples out there dealing with infertility and, you know, complications with pregnancy and childbirth and that sort of thing. And and what I've learned is like, nobody really talks about it. So you don't know how prevalent it is, but yeah, like my wife and I, we're doing a similar thing. And I even, even personally, I did it with my ex-wife as well. Uh, and it was one of the, one of the things, I mean, there were several reasons why we divorced. And again, me being, young and dumb and you know drinking a case of beer every day and and just using the bong like a snorkel and all this sort of shit you know that all added up but the fact that we'd been trying for children for five years and then having a look at fertility treatment as well with her having pcos and me having a low sperm count and everything it was it was just something we couldn't come back from we we weren't strong enough in our relationship to be able to move forward fast forward to today you know i'm now with my wife uh i met her when she was four months pregnant and so i've just automatically became like de facto dad you know um i was there for the childbirth i was there for you know sonograms ultrasounds all that sort of jazz and it was really cool having that experience, even though I didn't get the fun of making him, <laughs> uh, still being there and uh, seeing all that progress and seeing him be born and then being there for the last seven years, raising this kid, it's been phenomenal. But that being said, you know, like it still kind of feels like our family's incomplete because we don't have a child of our own together. And so, yeah, we're we're at that point. We haven't haven't moved forward into the IVF stages yet. We've still... 
we're seeing the doctor and they're like, you got to lose another 10 kilos. You need to lose a bit more weight. You know, we can't start anything until we're at this bench line. And uh, so we kind of put it on the back burner and if anything, put on weight. So now we're even further behind the eight ball. So, you know, again, we're, we're doing that and it's, it, emotionally even especially in the beginning stages it sucks but then they have to go through everything else that you've you've been through man i don't know how you hold you hold your shit together like well i didn't i uh i crawled i I crawled into a bottle yeah how 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 do things not go tits up just like uh just like the first time around it uh kind of just was a, a a dawning to me and yeah, like I mentioned to you, I think uh, off the air, when when my wife was going through all of this, she was able to get um, get into certain social media groups that were kind of support groups for women going through IVF. And there, as much as I looked, there there really wasn't that for for dads or prospective dads. And so I was left to my own devices, and my own devices was whiskey. So I would you know seclude myself away down in my little cave and uh do my creative endeavors and drink and i i tried i knew i knew it was getting out of control when i couldn't remember coming back upstairs and so as most addicts you try to figure out a way around that and I, I was like, okay, well, here's here's what I'll do. I won't I won't bring the bottle down with me. I'll, I'll pour myself a couple of fingers, and I'll just have that. And all that accomplished was me needing to walk back up the stairs twenty times a night. So you know that didn't work. And I know it. I know it sounds strange, but I, I think you'll find that uh, a lot of guys probably do the same thing. You know we we lose ourselves emotionally in something. And for me, it was not necessarily my creative endeavors, but it was the ritual of the creative endeavor. So I would, you know, I would be listening to certain, certain music and I would have my drink and that would be it. And, you know, sometimes as music tends to a certain song at the right time will tell you what you need to hear. And it was, it was after we had lost our only male embryo and uh, there's a tool song called Jimmy. I know the one. Okay. And that was it. I heard that song and damn near had a mental breakdown. And I was just like, you're doing this again. You're doing this all over again. And I talked to my wife about uh, about my seeing a therapist and she was totally on board with it. And uh, so I went and started seeing seeing a therapist and right away. Uh, he was just like, you're not an alcoholic, you're an addict. There's a difference. And I was just like, but but I don't I haven't done I haven't done drugs in you know, 20 something years. It's just booze. I'm an alcoholic. Nick's like, no, 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 no. Look at everything else in your life. If you didn't have the booze, you would find something else to focus on good or bad. 
whatever you put in front of you. And I was just like, shit, you're right. You're fucking right. Until you're clean, you don't hear the voice because you're open to the voice all the time. That little lizard brain that talks to you when you're all alone and you're not doing anything. Maybe you're bored. I clearly remember one Saturday morning and my wife was at work. I was just brushing my teeth and it was like I heard a voice that was not my voice saying, why don't you go to the liquor store? And I was like, son of a bitch, look at that. And that was the first time I ever really heard it that way. And, you know, it gets, it gets better. I've been, I've been sober for, for a few years now, um, but it never goes away. And, you know, then certain things happen like uh, here in the States with all of the changes in laws regarding, you know, marijuana and THC and all that stuff. There are, you know, dispensaries and smoke shops on every other block now. It's ridiculous. But still, especially as a as a writer and I'm working on a, I'm working on a new book right now. And, you know, sometimes you hit like this creative block and you're just like, oh, man, I need something to shake me out of this. What the hell? And that little voice is like, dude, there's pot right up the fucking street. Just just go get some gummies and knock one out. You'll you'll break those gates down. And, and you're like, you little son of a bitch. You think you can con me into doing this again, huh? So you just always have to have your guard up because, you know, uh, if you're an addict, you're an addict for life. It's never going away. And you have to be able to face that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I went to therapy. He got me to admit that I uh, quit drinking. Um, I was lucky enough that my therapist was a recovered alcoholic. He gave me the giant AA book. The big blue book. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He gave me the big blue book. And uh, he said, you don't have to go to any meetings if you don't want to, but start looking through this. And I did. And I've still got uh, I've still got that copy of the book that uh, sits on my nightstand. If I if I need it, it's there. But I never went to a meeting and I've never had another drink since. Congratulations, man. That's great to hear. Well, thank you. It's uh, most days you don't even think about it. And some days it's all you think about. Look, as, a, as an addict myself, I know exactly where you're coming from. Uh, you know, again, for years, I always thought I was an alcoholic. And I always said I was a, a, a functional alcoholic, you know, I was still going to work, this, that, and the other. And But it was it was ruining job prospects. It was ruining relationships. And I was like, okay, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until a, or maybe five years ago, not long after I met my wife, that I actually realized that I was an addict because I've, I've got this saying, right, that I, I don't like drugs, but drugs really like me. Oh yeah, you know, and and people have offered me in the past, and I've I've had to turn it down, not because I didn't want to, because man, especially drugs, I love doing drugs, I love the way it makes me feel, all that shit. But I know for a fact that if it's just that once, I'm gonna lose control. There's there's absolutely no way I'm gonna be able to recover from it. So I have to like, no, nah, I'm not touching that pipe today. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. That being said, though, man. Like booze is a big issue for me still because I'd be I tried going sober and I I'd, I'd go three months sober and then I'd relapse and then I'd go two months sober I'd relapse, go another three months and 
I'm again, like you said, you find that excuse, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a bit blocked at the moment, or I can't, I can't deal with these emotions right now. I need something just to take the edge off. But then you don't take the edge off. You completely blunten the whole fucking blade, you know, and, and next thing you know, you're waking up with a hangover. Your mouth tastes like a bird is just shit in it. You know, it's, it's, it's a fucking nightmare and it's a vicious cycle. And, and now even I'm convinced myself that oh, I'll have a couple of drinks on this special occasion. I'll be good. Next thing I know, I've got beer in the fridge, you know, when I didn't before. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I understand what you're saying there, man. It's it, it's a bitch. Ah, fuck. Yeah, yeah. After I, after, I, after I stopped drinking, I secluded myself from any situation whatsoever where anyone would be drinking. Um, isolated myself from family gatherings. You know, people just thought I was being an asshole. And they had, they had no idea that I had stopped because I didn't tell anyone. And, you know, I was the guy who would walk in the room and go, who's doing shots with me? And, uh, you know, being, you know, I don't, uh, I don't live in the city currently, but, you know, having lived in the city, I had a, I had a lot of friends who were in, in bands around the New York City area. So I was always at, at clubs and music venues. And, you know, that's, that's what you do. Yeah. How are you gonna get in the, how are you getting the get in the pit if you're not shit faced? So I was really, really, really worried and I had bought concert tickets for uh for a show. And I don't know if you're familiar with the uh guitar player Nita Strauss. She plays for the band Alice Cooper. Yeah, man. She not long ago did a song with um with David Draymond. Oh yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yeah. She's she's fucking amazing. She really is. So she was doing uh, she was doing a show, and I had uh, VIP tickets to to go because at the same time she was also doing like this uh, this fitness competition thing called Body Shred, and uh, I had clearly fallen from my former military glory. So I was trying to get back in shape, and uh, you know I lost a bunch of weight. And it was it was good, but. I went to the show and uh, to get into the competition, you had to write like a, like an intro letter. And in my intro letter, I admitted that, uh, that I had addiction issues and booze was a big problem. And I know that, you know, in her past, she, she got sober too. So when we met at the VIP and she saw my name, she remembered the letter that I had sent in. Wow. And she, she took the time to speak with me uh, before the show for a little while. And I told her, I said, this is my first sober show. You know, I go to a lot of concerts, but I haven't gone to a show since I got sober. And she said, don't worry about it. It'll be just you and me having club soda. It's, it's all going to be good. So show was great. They were amazing. And uh, after the show, I hung out outside and uh, both her and her, her now fiance, Josh, who was also her drummer, who's amazing. They hung out with me for probably close to 45 minutes after the show to the point where I felt bad that I was bogarting all their time. 
And they talked with me about it being my first sober show and the struggles that they went through. And yeah, just absolutely amazing people as, as well as uh, amazing musicians. But once I broke that barrier, I was good. And I felt like I could go back to, you know, a, a normal semblance of, of life and go to these family gatherings. I was like, man, if I can handle a fucking hard rock show, I can go to fucking Christmas dinner and, and not get shit faced. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the tipping point. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't until after all of that, that my wife kind of came to me and she said, you know, it's, it's a really good thing that, that you went to get help because you were getting really bad and she didn't know how much longer she was going to be able to put up with it without, you know, telling me how bad it was getting. You know, which had to be hard for her because she was, you know, at the same time going, still going through all of the pregnancy things. She's dope to the gills on medicine and me giving her shots twice a day, every day, all the psychological and emotional stuff that goes along with all of that. That's yeah. Look, I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from as well. Cause like one thing I struggled with, with sobriety and I'm glad you pointed out Christmas. Cause this is a big one for me, right? Growing up, there was a tradition in my family where my father cooked the turkey. He would carve the turkey. The turkey was dad's thing. That was his contribution to Christmas. And I, I took that on as my own thing where, because we don't do Thanksgiving here. So Turkey Turkey Day is Christmas Day for us. Uh, so I took that on for myself. But it would be, okay, I'm up at five in the morning prepping the turkey. Well, shit, I'm in the kitchen. I'm cooking. I've got to have a drink while I'm cooking, right? So it's it's five in the morning. I'm cracking that first beer. It comes to lunchtime. I'm too shit-faced to even carve the turkey. So I'm like, okay, look, I've cooked. You guys do the rest. Dish it up. Let's eat. But then because I'm I'm already on that roll, I've got, you know, as we say, a loaf in my belly. So let's say 30 beers. You know, I'm not hungry. So I'm not eating. I'm still necking them back. And so, yeah, coming coming with Christmas is a big one for me because it's like, what do I do with myself, man? I'm not drinking. And and that that was a struggle for me last year. I, and again, I ended up caving and drinking on Christmas Day. But it's it's I'm at I'm at the, a similar point where I've got to go to therapy and I've got to find new coping mechanisms and work out how I'm going to get through life without these negative coping mechanisms, because this is the beauty of addiction. It doesn't start because you're an addict. It starts because you don't have healthy coping mechanisms and then you become an addict. Like somebody addicted to heroin never put the needle in their arm because they were addicted to the stuff. They were looking for an escape, you know, and then that escape became an integral part of their life. And that's where like really where I'm at with, with, alcohol i love it because it is an escape but at the same time it, it come, there comes a point where it's it's not an escape it's just a crutch it's just something for you to be able to keep going through the motions every day yeah and and it's a bitch yeah i mean you know professionals can debate the nature versus nurture all day long but from my perspective what i have observed within myself is that a lot of people are using drugs and alcohol as an escape, like you said, from something in their life that 
they either don't want to or don't know how to deal with. And their life gets progressively worse, but they don't understand that part of the reason that your life is going downhill is because you're doing exactly what you're doing to try to escape it. And like you said earlier, for me, there's, there's no falling off the wagon. I don't fall off the wagon. I supercharge the V8, get behind the wheel of the wagon and floor the fucking thing down a hill into a tree. And, you know, you can only do that so many times before you're dead. That's exactly right, man. Oh, look, moving on, because there's a reason as well why I wanted to talk to you. And and this is this is focused around your creativity and your creative works. Right. So you sent me a PDF of your latest book. Can you tell us a little bit about that, man? Because when I read it, it really rung true for me. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so this did not, uh, it, it didn't start as a book. Uh, this was, I wrote it on October 30th of last year. And it was, uh, just one of those things where it just started popping into my head. At first it was a little verse, and, and I would write these things down because when my daughter was born, I bought a journal and I decided that I was going to, I was going to write to my daughter and I was going to write to her about all of the things that we had gone through to get her here and all of the things that she wouldn't remember. And all of the things that, hell, I might not remember. So I was going to keep a journal about my daughter so that someday I could give it to her. And part of the reason for that was, uh, like I said, you know, my wife and I spent uh, quite a few years trying to get financially stable. So we aren't the youngest parents on the block. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the one of the things is... Uh, you never, I don't, I don't know what point in someone's life they actually realize how old they are. And for me, it wasn't until my daughter was born and I realized, holy shit, by the time your daughter is your age, you're going to be dead. You won't be here. Almost assuredly. I mean, it's possible, but it's not likely. And so I wanted her to have something from me that, that she could always look back on that would explain to her what, what her dad felt. And as dads, a lot of us aren't the greatest at expressing our emotions. And for me, at least, I can express things on paper in a far better fashion than I can say them out loud. So for all the things that I can't say to her, I can have in this journal. So she will know. So something just popped into my head. And over the course of four hours or so, I had written an entire manuscript for, for, a, for a book, for a book based around Christmas. Um, and that was, you know, just kind of the, the setting for a, kind of a deeper meaning of the story. Um, and when I read it over the next day, I was like, shit, this is, this is 
this is pretty decent. Maybe I can do something with this. And I wasn't convinced and I sat on it for a while. And then I started showing it to some people, including my, uh, my sister-in-law who is a kindergarten teacher in the New York city public school system. And she was like, okay, I'm sitting in class. You just made me cry. You're an asshole. I was like, oh, well, I, I guess it's got to be halfway decent though. And so, yeah, so I started shopping it out and uh, ended up, you know, getting a publisher to work with me on uh, bringing it to life. And, uh, you know, as someone who had no idea how the publishing industry worked, I had no clue whatsoever that writing the manuscript was going to be the easy part. And then all the hard work was still to come. Yeah, look, I've, I've considered writing in the past, but again, I don't know. I've got this thing where I, I don't like writing my thoughts down because then it's proof. People can use it against me, you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, make it make make it fiction. Yeah, that's what I need to do. But uh, what I what I loved about this book that you've done, man. Like I say, I could relate to it because what I took away from it is is the whole thing that's like adults really don't put that much weight into Christmas until they have kids, and then Christmas takes on a whole different meaning. You know, like both, both my wife and I, before our son was were born, we were both Grinches, man. I was I was Scrooge all day, every day. Bar humbug this, bar humbug that. Fucking hate Christmas. And then our first Christmas with our son, my wife is like going all out. There's decorations all over the place. The trees immaculate. Like there's, and I'm like, what's the deal? Like, we hate Christmas. She's like, yeah, but I want to make it as special for the baby as I can. I'm like, the, he's a baby. He's not going to remember this shit. It's his first Christmas. Like, why are we going all out? You know, if I, and I'm standing there, bar humbug. Uh, I think I said the same thing. You know, but now we're at a point, we, we fucking love Christmas for the pure fact. It's, it's sitting there and seeing the joy on our little boy's face every morning when he comes down. And, and there's those little traditions that you do, like, I hate Elf on a Shelf with a passion, but every morning coming downstairs and hearing my son, hey, Dad, check out where the Elf is, and, oh, he's brought me a present today, or, you know, it's it's just, that's what that's that's what Christmas is about for me now. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's that kind of feeling that I tried to instill in the book. And it wasn't even necessarily just about not caring about Christmas because it's Christmas, we didn't feel like we had anything to celebrate. And uh, if you if you look through the PDF, there's there's certain things that when I storyboarded the entire book, that if you're just looking at it to see pretty pictures and not seeing kind of the subtext behind the meaning of the pictures that you might miss, like on the very first page, it shows the um, the husband and wife sitting on a couch and they're sitting at opposite ends of the couch. There's, there's a chasm between them that needs to be filled. And then later on in the book, when, you know, the baby is there and the little girl is opening her presents, they're snuggled up together on the couch because she has brought them together in a way that nothing else could. And there's certain other things in the book where like one wall 
is is colored differently after she's born, bringing more color and more joy into their lives. And then there's lots of things that I put in the book that are are from my own childhood, where like the um, the Christmas lights wrapped around the banister of the uh, of the stairwell is something that my father would do every year, and it brought him tons of joy to light up the house for Christmas because it made his kids happy. So it was things like that, but it was also that I wanted, I didn't want this book to be a book really for the kids. I wanted the book to be for the parents because there's, you know, there's way too many books out there that a parent will read to their child one time and think, Oh, okay. That's kind of cute. And by the time you get to the fifth time you're reading it, you're like, this book sucks. If I have to read this book one more time, I'm going to throw it in the fireplace. You know, it's like the, it's like the difference between, you know, watching baby shark videos on YouTube and watching a a movie. Like uh, if you're familiar with the movie up from Disney. Yeah. Okay. Like my wife and I saw the movie up. And if you remember the first 15 minutes of that movie, it is a giant downer. It's this kid getting bullied and growing up and meeting the girl and her dying of cancer and him being alone. And you're like, what the fuck did I just walk into? You know, it's a kid's movie. Kids are going to enjoy it, but it's not for kids. That's for adults. And that's what I wanted to do with the book. I wanted to make a book for adults that they could read to their children that has a much deeper meaning that someday after their kids are through being enamored with picture books, they could give back to their child and say, this is what you meant to us. This is what you mean to us that no matter how many presents are under the tree, they don't mean anything. What means everything is what we feel about you, how we express that to you. And no present that you could ever give us means anything because you are the present. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. And you know what? I'm going to have to go back and read through this book again because those what you've pointed out there are really, now you've pointed them out, so bloody obvious. But Reading the book, I didn't pick up on those little nuances like the colored walls and the 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 seating positions on the couch and stuff like that. I didn't even pick up on it. So that's uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to reread it now, and I'm sure I'll read a totally different book this this time around. <laughs> yeah, I had to uh, I had to go through like five or six rounds of editing with uh, with my illustrator to make sure everything was exactly the way I wanted. Like you can see, you know. In, in the first opening shots, there's no pictures on the walls. And then there's a picture of the baby sonogram. And then there's two pictures. And then there's three pictures. And then the wall is colored. Yeah, so there's a lot of things I, I put in there that are, are for parents who are going to look at it again with a more discerning eye than just, you know, glossing over it the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude. We're just about out of time. So if you can, man, tell us where parents can find this book of yours. Give it the plug, man. Okay. Well, uh, the name of the book is called The Unseen Gift, A Christmas Love Story. And you can find it in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon 
or you can go to my website, which is www.vangildercanebooks. That's V-A-N-G-U-I-L-D-E-R-K-A-N-E-B-O-O-K-S.com. Um, I've got paperback signed copies on my website. And if uh, anyone is a fan of horror novels, I have, uh, I have a horror novel also there. Uh, written under a pseudonym because I didn't want there to be any confusion between a children's picture book and my uh, more hardcore horror stuff. Uh, so yeah, the first uh, first horror novel is there, and I'm I'm working on the sequel right now. That's awesome, man! I'm gonna have to check that out for myself as well because, as I was saying off air earlier, I'm a huge horror buff. Well, if you have a if you have if you have Kindle Unlimited on Amazon, it's uh, it's free on Kindle Unlimited. Check it out. Oh, the, the wife has her Kindle. I'll, I'll get her to download that for me then. Yeah, the uh, the horror novel is called Wellspring of Malignancy. Ooh, sounds interesting, man. And like I yeah. say, I got to I got to break <laughs> out of my Stephen King sort of bubble. You know, I got to. I got, like I say, I got this bad habit of reading one author and one author only. And yet, my wife, man, she's she's read. I don't know. I've lost count of how many books she's read this year <laughs> but the number of books she's read and there's all these different authors and i just yeah i need to expand my horizons a bit so i'll definitely check that out man yeah you should uh you should check it out it's uh you know it's kind of a a supernatural horror revenge story i'm intrigued i'm intrigued well look namaya thanks so much for you know sitting up late at night to have this conversation with me man and uh Thank you so much for sharing your story, dude. Yeah, Nate, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to find out more about today's guest, just check out the links in the show notes. You can follow the podcast as well on social media at Not So Secret Dad's Business or on our website, notsosecretdadsbusiness.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please rate and review the show. It helps more than you realize. Until next time, guys, be the best dad you can be.